Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Ariel Vignals. Ariel is the lead of the deep learning team at DeepMind. Ariel, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Hey, Sam, it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. This conversation is long overdue. I'd love to get started by having you share a little bit about your background and introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, absolutely. This could go a long time, so I'll try to keep it maybe <laughs> at the maybe more recency bias, I guess. But I've been in the field of machine learning, deep learning since it was quite not as popular as it is today. <laughs> so it's been definitely a fun journey. I'm happy to link this back at the end of our conversation a little bit. But in a nutshell, I've been maybe the main passion I've had always is with sequence modeling. Mm -hmm. So I started in speech recognition where a lot of deep learning early days things were going on. And then I transitioned from doing my PhD in California, in Berkeley, to, to joining Google Brain in very early days. Worked a lot on actually natural language processing. We had maybe one of the works that links forward to many of the research that I'm doing these days is the sequence work on machine translation that we did back in the day. Mm -hmm. And then my passion for sequences kind of was developing at some point, it was a good time to actually go back to Europe. I'm originally from Spain, so I moved to London in 2016, where I joined DeepMind. And since then, I learned a lot, actually, about reinforcement learning. One of the most fun projects I've had pleasure to work with a large team of people is the AlphaStar project involving creating an agent to play StarCraft. But actually, in that creation, a lot of the sequence modeling background came back as we use a lot of LSTMs, transformers, all these kind of models that are very popular thanks to their performance in NLP. And these days, I'm mostly just focusing on leading the deep learning team and trying to just do the, the usual things that we like to do in deep learning, which is try to unlock state-of-the-art or new horizons and benchmarks in many modalities and as many modalities as we can. Mm -hmm. As deep learning has matured, folks often get a lot more specialized. Leading the scope of deep learning writ large seems like a very big scope. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, it was fun because the way it all started, right, it was literally a lot of like proving yourself in very specific fields, even very specific applications in those fields. Mm -hmm. So the very first results that caught people's attention were actually on speech recognition. So that started actually mostly in, thanks to the Toronto group led by, of course, uh, Jeff Hinton. I got to learn that through my internships at Microsoft Research, where a lot of action was happening. And then maybe the most obviously notable moment that most people would refer to is the ImageNet moment that really happened right. almost three, four days, no, years <laughs> these days. Time passes very differently. Mm -hmm. But yeah, three or four years after that breakthrough, the ImageNet moment occurred. And then from there on, it's been an adventure of basically trying to find where are the frontiers of what deep learning models can or cannot do. And through the years, it turns out that by applying more or less the same methodology through gradient descent, new architectures, but refining ideas, adding the right kind of inductive biases to our models, etc., 
you end up then transferring to more and more areas that involve, of course, natural language, machine translation, then now all sorts of like language modeling, multimodal language, vision, generative models. One of the recent successes, of course, of the year was AlphaFold, in which essentially all these tools just were applied to these very different domains. So expanding to more and more domains of science in general has been now the day-to-day and the way to think perhaps when you're thinking more deep learning in 2021 and beyond. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd love to have you elaborate a little bit on that. When I kind of think about the the field, I tend to think about it in terms of there's this set of work that's been like applying deep learning to new application areas. There's been applying a deep learning approach to kind of technical fields. That's not a great way to put it, but like, okay, we've got graph machine learning. Like, how do we do that in deep learning? Got reinforcement learning. How do we do that with deep learning? That kind of thing. And then there's been a lot of energy, just how do we make deep learning more computationally efficient and make it easier to train that kind of thing? Are you working across all of those areas or do you even think about it similarly? How do you think about that taxonomy? One thing that I tend to, I found it useful throughout my career and and this, I think the level of generality has increased over the years. But what you try to do mostly if you're a deep learning researcher, having been in the field for a bit, is to try to just identify commonalities across modalities Mm -hmm. or problem settings. And in a way, I have this sort of argument, and I've given more obviously more detailed technical talks recently about what I call the deep learning toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a reasonably, you can see quite a few examples on some of the major successes recently on applying this toolbox approach. And by a toolbox, I mean, we have architectures, tricks of the trade on how to train the models, like optimization methods how to use the hardware more efficiently. Like This is all part of this gigantic toolbox. And then when you're faced with a new problem, if you're truly like embracing sort of the deep learning approach, you're applying almost always the same first principle, which is you learn everything. Everything is learned end-to-end from the output back to the input by training a set of learnable weights through gradient descent in general. And then you just pick and mix and match from the toolbox the precise elements beat, oh, I, I have a sequence, so okay, I'm going to use a transformer. It's a very long sequence. Maybe I'll use an LSTM. I have vision. I use convolutions, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you're mix and matching all these components. Mm-hmm. And then when faced with a new problem, like folding proteins, which obviously has some similarities, but in the end, is like at the input, you have a sequence of letters, right? The amino acids that form the protein. And then the output are like this sequence an ordered set almost of 3D coordinates, right? So when you're faced with this problem, you say, okay, I have some data that maps these inputs to these outputs that people in the community has built over the years, very expensive to do because you need crystallography and some methods to generate this training data. But then with the deep learning mindset, you just go at the problem and then iterate over ideally a very nice training validation split as usually is done in machine learning. Then you start playing with details that matter a lot, actually, to unlock performance to attack this particular new modality, right? So I think it's the right framing to think about what is the next modality? What is a challenge? Is it a very large graph that we currently cannot quite do because, yeah, we have graph neural nets, but do they scale properly and so on? Mm -hmm. 
And that is generally how then you see a lot of papers at NeurIPS and other conferences kind of tackle these new challenges. And what's beautiful about this is that even though there is a theory of deep learning, that's a field I've gotten a bit into, like just because it's just fascinating. But in general, how the field has advanced is there is a problem out there. You take it, you cannot change it, but you apply this first principle of end-to-end learning, learnable model, powerful model, and then hopefully you enable something that that field was not you know, maybe looking at at the time. Although nowadays, many people have heard about deep learning. <laughs> Right. And it's quite permeating everywhere. It's mostly you don't have to prove yourself in the maybe the same way that we had to by going one field at a time almost, as we were doing in 2008, you know, nine up to maybe 2014, 15, with, where, where things really start taking over and people start paying attention given the successes were too many maybe to ignore. Mm-hmm. Two, three years ago, a lot of work was happening in the area of just getting the basic machinery working, tweaking the optimizer, tweaking learning rates, all this kind of stuff. Are are you still involved in that kind of work? Do you think that's accelerating as more people are coming in or slowing down as we've gotten the basic machinery working? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Going to kind of all the modalities, right? The ultimate modality, if you extrapolate, is, well, all the data is just sequence of bytes, right? You can always represent any data structure input or output as a sequence of bytes. Mm -hmm. And that is a very kind of romantic almost way to think about machine learning, at least supervised learning problems. Kind of a grand unified theory of deep learning or something? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in that sense, what has happened is that sequence models have evolved enough that we have transformers, which might not be the last iteration over the ultimate model, right, that will rule all the modalities, Mm -hmm. sort of applying the same model, the same formula, right, to kind of the toolbox maybe just reduces to this one model. Mm -hmm. We're not quite there yet, but that is one way to see it. And indeed, as the field is advancing, I think the details are refined enough that more people can just access this toolbox without being maybe necessarily an expert and see successes in a reasonable, simple way. Obviously, this goes hand in hand with the fact that our software has also tremendously advanced with all the frameworks that exist currently and open source and et cetera that exist to lower the barrier of entry to the field. But I I would say that, yes, it's easier to get the details right, more so than it was three years ago. Although, I mean, I think there's still quite a lot of research to be done indeed. Sure. Just kind of hinging off of this point that you made around sequences and and transformers and how we're almost there. Do you have a feeling or a bet on, do we get there? Is transformers the thing that gets us there? Is it something that's a slight evolution of transformers? What dimensions do you think get us there if you think we get there? I think transformers have evolved in a very natural, cool way from obviously what has come before transformers, LSTMs, attention mechanisms, etc. Mm-hmm. But indeed, there are also a lot of limitations. And like there's a very computational sort of framing of machine learning, which is to say, well, we want to map any modality to any modality. Our model needs to not make many assumptions over the underlying data, so it kind of adapts to all the tasks that we might be interested in tackling. I think transformers do quite well here. 
an obvious challenge that if you look at the probably the amount of papers tackling this, probably going to be a few, is the fact that Transformers still requires, it's very symmetric in the way that it looks at all the data. I mean, if you think of language modeling, for example, yeah. it just looks at every single piece of text, right? And when you're reading a book, that's not how you're kind of ingesting this information as you read chapter after chapter. So there's some beautiful work, I think, still to be done in the memory mechanism being a bit more more hierarchical. Maybe that's losing inspiration from how we think we work in terms of ingesting information and you know compressing the information we ingest. We don't remember every single detail. That being said, computers might not necessarily need to operate like we do, right? So it is possible that, well, okay, like we cannot do that, but well, the machines can do it. So maybe that is fine. But I think computationally, there are definitely challenges that make transformers have definitely some limits on the amount of information they can process effectively in parallel as they ingest these sequences of information or bytes. Sounds like you're suggesting a kind of a higher level attention mechanism that more broadly shapes the way that the transformer is learning from the data that it's presented. Yeah, and this exists, it's just that then it's the matter of what details, how the optimization can be made to work. But I think the indeed some more forms of hierarchical memory from course to fine, lots of these ideas existed in computer vision for, for years as well. So I think there's going to be a good mix of ideas and, and iterative processes until maybe the next model that feels more efficient for other tasks we might not even be thinking about. That's what I was saying. You need to push the envelope. So usually it goes hand in hand with a new task that we cannot even dream of doing right now because, yeah, the limitations of the -the state-of-the-art models. But I think hierarchy in memory is one of my bets. Definitely some work, you know, we've done and, and we, I mean, the whole research community is doing that I think is, I'm definitely keeping an eye on. Mm Mm-hmm. Also related to Transformers and the impact that we've seen there is the work specifically happening around large language models. What kind of work are you doing there? Large language models is a very fascinating field that you could think there's been a huge paradigm shift or maybe there's been none depending on how far you zoom zoom back in the past, right? Because... (laughs) Yeah. If you look even in the 50s, Shannon like was already intrigued by the fact that, well, if you have statistical pieces of text, you could actually generate text from n-gram models. And, and then, you know, you have to go forward to maybe the neural language model error until we start to scaling this up with the data and the models and GPUs, etc., to start unlocking indeed state-of-the-art machine translation, which already feels a bit magical because in machine translation, we're asking the model to translate sentences that definitely are not in the training set. As we know, most of the sentences we utter, they're probably unique. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we would not be talking to one another because we could always predict what, what is Sam going to say, what is Oriol going to say. Yeah. But thanks to this mix of components, I think last five years and then Transformers being the last maybe ingredient that has been added to this mix toolbox view that I was mentioning, we've gotten to to language models that, yeah, we can sample from and we can query, but it starts to feel like, oh, this is, if we were talking to someone right behind the scenes, like going back to obviously Turing and Turing test ideas, although maybe that is not that useful these days, but just thinking like that, you have this pre-trained language model that you can start 
treating like an entity that can obviously utter any text. And that's powerful if it's good enough. And I think that's what changed. We were doing this all along, I would argue, in NLP for many years. Many people have obviously tried to model language. So the basic principle exists. I mean, you could always query the model to ask it a question and see how it reacts. Does it know about color of the sky, etc.? But recently, thanks to scale, there's what is true is that the performance has been so good and the change from like millions to billions of parameters has triggered like now, okay, a new dream almost of what else could we do if we kept scaling on the one side? And also like, look, it's unbelievable that felt like maybe at that end or like, sure, we could use language models in a more complex system that uh, was doing the traditional chatbot building with rules and so on. Now this actually feels like it's in a state that for some applications and with lots of caveats actually, can actually be used and feels like a very powerful tool. And indeed, OpenAI being probably the one that has pioneered this more notably has shown some demonstrations, right? So at DeepMind, we are definitely looking into this. The space of large language models is extremely exciting. And actually, if you look a bit at the history and perhaps things like you see in projects such as the one I was involved with, which is a StarCraft, the way I always thought about StarCraft coming from where I come from is that it's just modeling sequences of words. These words don't, are not like English words. They're like instructions on that you send to the game engine, like move this piece here. And it's a very rich language. It's an API-like language. But you could already start seeing the power of these methods beyond language to like decision-making and agents. And I think there's a lot of interesting parallels that we are already witnessing by like human level, like Go actually the very first steps in AlphaGo were indeed as well, similar to modeling, precise modeling of the probability of the next word. In Go, the next word is just a two-dimensional like position of where you would put the next piece. But in general, this principle has been there since ever. And then all that it took is for the performance to be at the level of, wow, you can really play a game or reply to almost anything you can ask these models. And you will get somewhat sensible replies sometimes, enough that this piques now the interest of many more and the field is indeed expanding a lot, which is super welcome. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned StarCraft once again, and you've got a workshop paper at NeurIPS that is a follow-up to the AlphaStar work. That was maybe 2019, the AlphaStar? Yes, end of 2019, yeah. Can you maybe give us a refresher on that work and then talk about what you are presenting at NeurIPS this year? Sure. I think DeepMind as a company obviously had its own different stages where the very early beginnings on Atari just showing that deep reinforcement learning is now has to prove itself, right? It's a bit like deep learning, mm-hmm. but now a bit more specific. So a way to prove itself is actually indeed to master ever more complicated domains or environments, as we call them in reinforcement learning. Instead of being data sets, you are optimizing a reward, but ultimately actually a lot of the deep learning kind of main components or ideas apply. So you saw this one at a time, right? Almost as a curriculum of increasingly domains like from Atari to Go and Chess, and and then ultimately I would say StarCraft being much more complex in many different dimensions as a a game or a video game. That's what we kind of were doing at DeepMind. And maybe that 
the Alpha Star project that regarded StarCraft II, which is a popular real-time strategy game, was the end of that sort of sequence of demonstrations of, well, these deep RL principles really apply to all the domains that we have found interesting in this sense of games that are complex, they require like asynchronous thinking, partial observability, all the right interesting properties that maybe the same way computer vision went from MNIST, which was very interesting until it became soft and then we moved over, right? So mm-hmm. this is kind of a parallel I like to visualize almost in this complexity versus the kind of game that Deep RL was tackling. And AlphaStar essentially did this through an approach that was not purely deep reinforcement learning. It actually employed imitation learning or offline reinforcement learning thanks to the massive amount of games that when humans play one another are recorded anonymously by the company that makes the game. So there's a huge wealth of sequences of observations and actions, right? That, as I said, you could see as a bit of a language that expresses moves in the game, right? Mm -hmm. And then that was kind of the first seed of AlphaStar, how we reach grandmaster level at the game was well, let's take a look at these sequences that we have at scale. There's actually millions of of sequences. So we have a lot of data, which is great in deep learning. The more data, the better. And then we learn to imitate, which essentially is applying the same principles as language modeling. So given all the words that we've seen until, until some point, we're trying to predict the next word. Or in the case of StarCraft, we're trying to predict the next move which is just kind of a complex object, like move this unit onto this position in the map, right? But Mm -hmm. it's actually very similar to a modeling language. And that first agent was reasonably good. It was actually better than most humans in terms of the median performance. But then we took it to the next level by then initializing a self kind of play system, a multi-agent system, in fact, of many agents that developed different skills and different strategies in the game. And they played each other for many years, actually. There's like each agent kind of plays a StarCraft over like 150 years or so. That's what we did in the Nature paper. And that achieves from this median level or above median level to really like the very top, top level of play that then we verified and we published, as you said, in the end tail of 2019. So That was very cool. And obviously our goal was, can we just really crack this game, right? So we took this kind of hybrid approach of initializing the model to imitate humans and then taking off by just doing self-play and in a way imitate how humans have discovered the game by playing online against each other. Mm -hmm. Recently, we were both motivated by first actually trying to pose StarCraft or imitating human moves as a challenge for those who study offline RL, which is this area of reinforcement learning where you're not allowed to interact with the environment. You can observe kind of agents or people interacting with environments, but you're not allowed because maybe it's not practical to perhaps go there and plug your agent in the environment and try to see if you get a reward. Mm -hmm. So that's a fascinating area. And what we thought is, look, we have one of the richest offline RL datasets, right? Millions of trajectories from humans of all levels playing the game. It would be great to first try to open this as a challenge for the community. So one thing we're working on very hard these days actually is to finalizing open sourcing. So anyone can just go download the code and just train their own agent based on this imitation principle only. So we're only looking at the very kind of first beginning of the whole alpha star agent. But at the same time, we were wondering, look, Can we push the performance of these agents 
we didn't care to do it at the time because we knew that multi-agent and self-play and reinforcement learning were going to be successful at, at making the agent better. But could we do that? Only imitating human moves. And that is kind of almost the same if you think of language modeling, that you're only imitating next word prediction. You're never training these models further, but by themselves are quite good. And the answer is you can push performance. We definitely have beaten the initial agent that was learned to imitate with some further refinements. We use Mu0. There's details in the paper that folks can go and read with some ideas, very key ideas using further than just imitating the next move from the offline RL community. We're able to beat that first alpha star agent that was very good and seeded, of course, what yielded the nature publication performance by, I think, over 90% of the time, right? So there is performance to be unlocked and this is only the beginning. I mean, we tried a few ideas, but I think this is a very fruitful resource for those who are interested in this field of offline reinforcement learning to maybe, maybe go and tackle this challenge and hopefully with the source code available and just the fact that it's such a fun game to observe and, and a cool domain, people might go and obviously then take it on and try to get to a next level of performance just with imitating human moves, which is fascinating to me at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think of, at least in this context, the uh, offline setting and uh, imitation as synonymous? It seems like they largely are, but that you could also envision other types of processing of the data set that has some benefit beyond just the imitation itself. Yes, there's a lot of names. I mean, people call this supervised learning, behavioral cloning, imitation learning. I think what's powerful about if you restrict yourself to, I will not interact with the environment, but I am able to see like what agents interacting with the environment achieved. I think that the powerful and what offline RL really poses is imitation is one part, right? So imitating the actions very well is what language modeling regards with. And it's very important. But there is also the reward that we observe in a game like Starcraft, like who won the game. Mm -hmm. And you can also predict the winner, right, offline. You can say, look, I mean, we have this game, two players playing. We have every single action they took. Let's try to imitate that to understand that very well, like we understand language. But also there is a fact that one of them won. And if we can model that precisely with a value function, which is obviously a a crucial element of most RL, then we can, even in an offline setting, try to find an action that is not just human-like, but maximizes the probability, according to our own estimate of the value, maximizes the probability of winning. And in fact, one of the best performance agents we showed uses Mu0, which is offline. We never use self-play, but Mu0 basically tries to model based on simulating actions that you may take in the future and then pick those that maximize reward or value, but according to your own estimate. And that extra step we didn't take at the time, but many people in offline RL obviously are studying not only actions, but also estimating the reward or value. Mm -hmm. We found that already enabled this level of performance that we didn't unlock at the time we were doing the project. But I'm sure there is more on how you train the values, how do you train the actions, what the losses are. There's a lot of toolbox, actually, components to be discovered, perhaps, and the usage of benchmarks is critical to advancing this. So there are quite a few benchmarks in offline RL already. I think StarCraft poses an interesting one, given its complexity in action space and the fact that it's partial observable and some properties that make this 
a unique environment like many others. Mm -hmm. To what degree are you seeing the learnings from the work that DeepMind and others are doing around games kind of translate to real-world, non-game scenarios? That's a great question because I think we're seeing quite a lot, for instance, like actually thinking of AlphaStar and then AlphaFold, Mm -hmm. a lot of the work we did in AlphaStar early days, Transformers just had come up. We started investing or seeing maybe good performance with Transformers. Maybe the first project that we saw that was AlphaStar, actually. And then Transformers and self-attention and some further tools that were developed specifically thinking about the protein folding problem were developed. And there's loose inspiration, right, by the fact that, hey, we know that there's this group that found this model that a different research group, that's the great part of research is you take at learnings from not only your own company, but of course, any other research institution. And loosely speaking, right, you can find always these connections, right, that from one project learnings, then it goes to others and, and so on. From games and reinforcement learning, actually, I see a shift now with many great examples of just applying the same RL techniques to other places. There's some that we are applying in language, right? Machine translation, for example. It's difficult. Like we have a few works. I'm not sure they're quite there in terms of breaking the state of the art. But certainly because you have this, again, going back to the beginning of the conversation, this deep learning approach that the tools must be generic than anything you discover in any specific domain because you try not to be very domain-specific, then they will naturally translate to other domains, ideally, right? Mm -hmm. And perhaps one of the things that in StarCraft, maybe it's a very simple idea, but I think this one has a lot of potential when you mix this idea of imitating humans with reinforcement learning refinement is that we added uh, distillation laws, which is a pressure of the RL model to actually look still even if it wants to change the actions because reinforcement learning is a different laws and it's doing different things, you make some pressure for the model to always sort of imitate a little bit the policy that it started from that imitates humans. And that was critical there. And in fact, in a lot of now language model applications, for instance, this principle, I see it kind of sprinkled around because it's quite natural to not want the model to diverge. And this comes from the older work on model distillation, knowledge distillation, et cetera, right? So it's, as I said, there's always these tools that ideally you purpose for some particular reason initially, but the consequences or the applications, they're going to be unprecedented. And I mean, Transformers is a great example of having been developed for machine translation. Now, suddenly they're folding proteins. I mean, even the authors of these papers, like it's just sometimes hard to believe probably like how is this happening? And it's a bit random and you need a bit of luck and the right titles in the papers. And there's a lot of interesting, actually, randomness in the field, which makes NeurIP such an interesting conference, actually, and all the other conferences in ML. But yeah, it's cool to think that these are basically, in the end, tools that we want to apply generally anywhere. And many times we see these successes transfer over very surprising areas that even the original inventors did not anticipate. Nice. One of the historical challenges with reinforcement learning, deep reinforcement learning in particular, is the sample inefficiency that gives rise to topics related to topics like few shot and one shot learning. You've got a poster at NeurIPS that is looking at multimodal few shot learning with language models. Is that in the RL context or uh, separate from RL? 
it's not in the real context, but it is definitely in the imitation learning context. And then it's proposing a way to try to leverage a large amount of data and a big language model that we train, right? Only on language. But then can this language model with a little bit of extra training be then tuned to be able to talk about images that it takes as its inputs, right? Mm. And this is fascinating because it links to few-shot learning, which is an area that actually as uh, one of the very first works I did when I joined DeepMind, there was all these meta-learning papers coming from the groups and I was very impressed. So one of the works we did was working on few-shot learning. What happened with the work is that we propose a new method that I think it's reasonably simple, but actually the benchmark proposing that paper is what made this paper more maybe widely known for the benchmark it proposed, which is called Mini ImageNet. And Mini ImageNet is the task of few-shot learning where you just have a few images from one class you've never trained, and the goal is to classify it better at that chance, right? And there's been a lot of work following up nicely defined, clear benchmark for the community. And the cool thing here is that Without even training at all to do mini image net or few shot learning for images, these language models, right, just through imitating just generic knowledge that is found on the internet about people talking to one another and so on, and with a little bit of fine tuning to understand correlations between images and language, namely captioning, image captioning is what we pre-train these models with, mm -hmm. but by freezing the language component, you can then reuse this model to not only do image captioning, but also mini ImageNet was one of the tasks that we present in the paper. And it's impressive that it's not only doing few-shot learning better than chance, but it's never trained with the purpose of doing few-shot learning. You're in a way borrowing the capabilities of few-shot learning from the language modeling. Mm -hmm. And then with a little bit of vision mixed in, you're able to do few-shot tasks that you were not even thinking when you were designing the training setting. Unlike what you were doing at the time, we were doing at the time with few-shot learning for image classification, where we were training the models to do few-shot learning for image classification, and then they were good at that. But now it's like almost you don't train them to do this particular task, but they actually generalize over different tasks that involve language and vision in different degrees, of course, of accuracy, not very high. But this is actually a lot of work that I see in the vision and language intersection is going this direction. And it's quite exciting to see all the amazing work that appears as well at NeurIPS and computer vision conferences alike. But it doesn't have RL, although you could always use RL to fine tune the models further. Yeah. But in general, that has not been like adopted yet too much, I guess, in these communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We spoke earlier about transformers as kind of this innovation frontier, for lack of a better term, and kind of where a lot of the activity is in the, the toolkit. And this poster is an example of transformers trained with language. In parallel, there's this broader conversation about foundational models in the community. You know, what's your take on that? Do you think that language is going to provide this substrate that we'll be able to do a lot of non-language things with, and that's going to be a broadly applied tool in the toolbox? Yeah, I honestly think looking at what's been going on and even taking yeah some inspiration from not only like transformers, but also ideas around unsupervised learning, self-supervised learning, another big area that, that's been exploding lately. Again, going back to the very beginning of deep learning, right? You have this principle, right? Like the traditional deep learning, maybe. Let's see what the next generation deep learning could look like. But the traditional one, 
is this, as I said, you take the data set of inputs, outputs, and you have this toolbox, you mix and match components, and then off you go. You train your model and it does reasonably well at many tasks. But this is quite unsatisfying, right? If you ask many of those who have been in the field for a long time, and obviously the ones that are not probably also find it annoying, the annoying bit is the weights are randomly initialized, which is beautiful in a way, but it's also like quite annoying. This is very wasteful, right? We're starting to train from scratch and we're throwing away a lot of energy used to find weights that we had for a different task that's somewhat related. And so this weight reusability, I think is what these foundational models and this way of thinking is getting at, which is, look, not only we want to take tools, we might want to take the tools with the weights associated with them, which poses a very interesting challenge of, can we initialize parts of the network with a language modeling component, but practice, and sadly, this is at the frontier, it's still not very clear that we found a way to use this idea of pre-trained weights in a successful way, meaning that we start from the pre-trained weights rather than random weights, and we achieve better performance. Although more exceptions start to appear in the field, such as the one from self-supervised learning in which you train features that look at image statistics that seem superfluous maybe initially, but these features happen to be quite good at classifying or doing all sorts of image tasks if you use them as pre-trained weights. But I do believe that this probably has to be part of an answer for the next generation deep learning that not only reuses the tools, but reuses the weights. But it is extremely tricky. Again, the field has been looking at this problem definitely before deep learning was deep learning. Mm -hmm. But it is very natural to think about that. And also, again, maybe looking a bit at how we learn, we don't always like start from a fresh brain when we learn something new, right? There's always an accumulation of learning capabilities. And that feels like a big gap in the way we do deep learning, despite the fact that you train these networks from scratch and they are good at protein folding or translation, and the components are the same, but the weights, not, right? And that, as we do research and find ways to make, make these weights useful and beating the performance without training from scratch, etc., I believe this is definitely a way forward. And it's exciting because definitely we tried many, many things, and it's hard. It's not, it's, it, you know, it feels intuitive, and it's one of these things that, neural nets don't seem to want to do too well without like a lot of effort. So there must be a way. And I mean, finding it is definitely in the future. I'm sure many people are excited about this. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to ask about is a panel that you're going to be on also at NeurIPS that is talking about a topic that's somewhat related to what we've talked about thus far, but is specifically focused on the consequences of the level of scale that we've achieved and that we, the way we're approaching machine learning with transformers is requiring. Tell us a little bit about that panel and some of the questions that it is exploring. I think the panel and the question about scale, there's a more profound question which links to actually in the whole field or what makes research good or interesting. And I find that that is a fascinating evolving topic, right? Definitely. I actually kind of recall, I think my very first NeurIPS paper has a theorem and a proof because at the time you had to put a theorem and a proof in a <laughs> NeurIPS paper for it to be accepted, right? That's what you had to do. 
the paper actually talks a bit about actually the deep learning with SBMs, which was a very, you know, obviously popular model at the time, super vector machines. But the question, and I think a challenge is scale is, is definitely permeating into research. And there is one of the main aspects that we'll be discussing the panel or we discuss in the panel is the fact that many research works or papers might be required or asked naturally by reviewers, hey, like, can you try this idea at scale, right? If you look at reviews, there's many reviews that are actually public. I, I really applaud the usage of systems like Open Review that has a more transparent way to show how the review process work. And it's quite great for people that are new in machine learning, perhaps the most. But you often see that, well, does this model scale or not, right? And is that a fair question to ask? Should we always aim to scale up our methods as we show like results at, at the conference that like NeurIBS? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is, I mean, absolutely not. But the question is, if a paper claims to have discovered a new tool or a new advance on an existing tool, the real question perhaps, and that's where it gets maybe a bit tricky, is in which data sets or in which benchmarks are you trying this idea on? And I think what the community has evolved towards is that, let's say in computer vision, if you don't show something works on ImageNet, it's probably a bit inconclusive based on, let's say, other very popular data sets that are smaller and thus a bit easier to to run on like CIFAR or MNIST. There's still a lot of work and insights discovered on those data sets, but it is natural that you scale up, right, these experiments to ImageNet Otherwise, I mean, the field is very big right now. There's another big change is that there are lots of good papers, very well written, and there is a bit challenging signal to noise ratio to understand or slice out what is a meaningful contribution or what needs more work in terms of showing empirically that some method works. And here, scale plays a big role. I think the role is that it's fair to ask maybe to run on ImageNet certain models. And then a very interesting follow-up question is, can everyone in the world scale to that scale of, of data set? ImageNet is not perhaps the most large one. If you think a bit of hardware and we can train ImageNet, there are some results that can train ImageNet in 10 seconds, of course, using a lot of parallelism. So it feels like in this sense, it's more accessible. But I mean, the real question is, is it truly accessible? And that creates, I think, a challenge and part of the battle, right? Discussing about accessibility to scale and is research at scale the only, or is there interesting research at scale? I think the answer is yes, but is the only research we should look for at scale? And I think absolutely not. And one very beautiful example that I can think of, again, related to transformers, is that at the time we were working on machine translation at Google, we had this sequence to sequence paper in which we used an 8,000 dimensional, like LSTM basically to do machine translation. And we achieved almost a state-of-the-art numbers with a technique that was completely different than what people had been doing at the time, which caught, I guess, people's attention. And it was perfected further. And most of, if not all, the machine translation systems nowadays run with some sort of neural network underneath. But Montreal had less GPUs. It's not that we use a lot of GPUs. We use eight GPUs for like 20 days. So it was a painful experiment to run, right? You had to wait 20 days and it's eight GPUs. They all fit in one machine. But of course, it's reasonably large scale. But I think Montreal took a different approach. And instead of scaling up to 8,000 layer, 8,000 units, 
they only could use 1,000 because maybe they run it on a single GPU. But what they did, which, which was, I think that's maybe the most transformative thing, no pun intended, is to invent attention. Mm. So the attention paper came maybe perhaps because a scale was not as available to a group in Montreal as it was for us at Google. And I think this is just a lesson that we need to learn that sometimes by just being resource constrained, very good research has happened, right? I mean, I'm not saying that then, oh, please, like be happy and never try to scale up. It's not like that. But indeed, there are examples and it should inspire creativity and different way of thinking, which ultimately might create a paradigm shift. And absolutely, as a community, we need to be very careful, of course, at discarding ideas because they don't scale. And it would obviously have been a mistake to discard that idea that created attention, which, of course, followed up with self-attention transformers and who knows what comes next. But that attention principle maybe was the key tool that we keep seeing being quite useful. And it was invented by a lack of like scaling up to achieve better results. They had to invent this very intuitive attention mechanism, which for translation made a lot of sense. You look at the sentence and you attend over the words that look like, oh, yeah, I'm going to translate this word. And that beautiful principle now is folding proteins, right? It's like unbelievable, but but it is what it is, yeah. Yeah, awesome. That's one aspect in the panel. And I think maybe the another big challenging question, I think, is I don't think we have many answers, although there were some interesting parallels with different fields. For instance, the large collider that exists at CERN, the question about, I mean, companies obviously have access to resources like compute, and I think it is, our duty to do the best we can in terms of research, publishing, and scaling up as responsibly as we can. But the, the real question is, how can you make that kind of research available right, to more people? And a very interesting thought is, who should kind of invest on the maybe building a computer for academic research? CERN is a very interesting example because the physics community kind of came together and decided well, we need to build this device. It's very expensive. It actually uses a lot of energy. I mean, it's quite an interesting place to be, actually. I, I was very lucky to be there very recently in, in the bizarre real-world experience that I had during the pandemic. But that is an interesting model. And there are challenges. It's not like, oh, we should just build a supercomputer like CERN and just have people access it in the same way that you do access CERN by writing grants. And, and it's a very interesting system, actually. But the problem there is, that happened with a lot of consensus that for many years, we need to test these things and to do them, we need this device. So a very, another question we, we discussed in the panel is, of course, it might be too early. Scaling up is something that, I mean, has happened in machine learning actually forever. It's not new. We, you look at the history of data sets. There's a scaling up trend, of course, of everything, thanks to more laws and so on. But the question is, do we feel assured enough that it's investing, like, let's say, public money uh, from different governments that maybe could form a coalition similar to CERN, is that the right moment to do it? Do we know that's the way to go? And that's a good, a good question. My answer to that is scaling up will be part of the solution, but it's not the solution, right, in terms of building intelligence. I think it's inconceivable to me that we need to scale up just because of, of the sheer amount of learning at the planetary, like species level that happened, if you think of the amount of parallelism, years, etc., that got us to be intelligent beings, just the existing proof tells me that scaling probably will be part of the solution, but it's not the only thing that 
will be like required, right? So anyways, the panel, I guess, no more spoilers. <laughs> it touched on all these very interesting questions. And a lot of them, of course, are sparked indeed by what we were discussing before on scaling up language models and their foundational model capabilities that they seem to exhibit. And if that is true, like when is the time to think very carefully about how to get access to the community, similar to the hardware that was being made accessible with CERN or yeah. another example is obviously the Hubble telescope, right? Very huge endeavors from, from to, to those things. So yeah, very interesting questions. I don't know if you have any thoughts or any solutions to this. I don't know. What do you think? What occurred to me was when you talked about humans as the existence proof of the requirement for scale, it prompted me to think about, I think we've demonstrated that scale is required to advance knowledge, but it's not clear that that's the same as advancing intelligence. There's a degree to, to knowledge that becomes kind of common knowledge and we take for granted. It's not obvious the the impact of our scale as a species on our intelligence per se. I mean, I guess you could argue that our scale as a species has facilitated, for example, nutrition. Like we've industrialized farming and we've, we've become stronger and that's, you know, made our brains bigger and that has advanced intelligence significantly. But I'm not sure that that's the same kind of scale argument. I really like, by the way, your knowledge. I think... Definitely, from a knowledge standpoint, we store all the knowledge in different formats, right, over time, without which things would be much harder. So even in that sense, accessing all the knowledge and learning how to access that feels like a natural thing we need to investigate from a machine learning standpoint. Mm -hmm. These language models are getting at the, the very first stages of they know or they have the knowledge in an imperfect way, et cetera, but they have the knowledge that exists in a particular corpus. But then, yeah, from there to intelligence, I agree. Like That's what I'm saying. I think it's part of the puzzle, but definitely not, not the whole puzzle indeed. Yeah, awesome. Well, Ariel, it has been wonderful catching up, chatting a little bit about all the things you're working on, particularly with regard to NeurIPS. You are also involved in a new-to-machine learning panel. We're not going to have a chance to talk about that, but for those who are new to the field, I encourage you to seek out that panel, and I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting tidbits to, to learn from there. Thanks so much, Ariel, for taking the time to, to chat. Excellent, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Long overdue and looking forward to him back in a few years. And we'll see if we change the discussion topics or it will be like about the same line of thinking about scaling up and so on. But the field is fascinating. So looking forward to our next chat. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.